0: Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Water Cooler. We got a big week going on. College football truly got started this weekend. And we're going to start off with the performance of the day from Texas quarterback Quinn Evers. As much as it hurts me to say, coming from an Alabama alumni and a fan, he just had our goat yesterday. Now, Texas beat Alabama 34-24, to 24. And quite frankly, the game just got out of Alabama's hands early. Jalen Milrow threw two interceptions, a crucial moments. But right now we're focusing on the performance of the day. Quinn Evers, he threw 349 yards, three touchdowns on 24 of 38 passing. Now, he came into Texas with big expectations. He got off to a rough start. They actually showed during the game his year-to-year transformation, and he just looks like a totally different person. He came to play last night, and unfortunately for us Alabama fans out there, Alabama just wasn't ready for it. Unlike what you would expect from a Nick Saban-led team, they were just inconsistent, too many penalties, not disciplined enough, which is the same thing we saw last year. Alabama versus Texas last year was an amazing game to watch. Probably one of the best college football games I got to experience during my time at Alabama. But the amount of penalties on Alabama during that game were a deciding factor in making the game that shouldn't have been that close a nail-biter. And it was the same story this year, to the point where even the commentators last night were talking about history repeating itself. The tail of the tape, as far as penalties go, last night, Alabama had 10 penalties and lost 90 yards because of it. And some of them were at very important parts of the game. Alabama lost a touchdown at one point because they had a flag thrown on the play. And just stupid mistakes ended up biting them in the tail. It's Nick Saban's first non-conference loss since his first season at Alabama. So over 10 years, it's been, I think they said, 50-plus games. It's his first home loss in over 20 games since LSU in 2019, which I was at that game. And it's just a tough way for Alabama to start off the season and a great way to set an example if you're Texas to show that not only do you mean business this year, but that you belong in the SEC. Now, a lot of people, I noticed on social media, after the whole Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC deal got announced, we're talking about how Texas couldn't compete, how they weren't ready. Well, they were ready last night, and they took on one of the best teams the SEC has to offer. So now, we'll see if they end up ever matching up with Georgia this year, or in the near future, what that matchup looks like, but... As far as the SEC in Texas goes, Texas will be able to duke it out with the best of them, especially with their young quarterback crew that they have. They're going to be tough. and Alabama, this isn't the way you want to start off your season. There's either two ways they can go from here. Either they're going to crumble and they're pretty much out of the playoffs mentally already. You only get one loss in college football, and they just kind of blew theirs out of the water the first major game of the season. And they've still got LSU, Ole Miss, Tennessee to go. It's not very promising. But maybe this serves as a big wake-up call, and they can start to get their stuff together and really rally for the rest of the season. Because as far as big-name opponents go, Alabama hasn't been doing good at all lately. In their last five major games, if you start with the Tennessee loss last year, they lost to Tennessee, they lost to LSU, they beat Texas A&M, they beat Auburn, and they lost to Texas. So they lost three out of their last five major games. And it's just not a good look for the Tide if they don't win the Natty this year, it'll be the longest stretch Nick Saban's gone in his career with Alabama without winning a national championship. But hopefully this will knock some sense into him because otherwise it's going to be a long season. And Jalen Milroe last night, is his first major test as the Alabama full-time starting quarterback, he didn't really have a whole lot to show for it. He had more carries than he did pass completions and he spent most of the game just running around in the pocket and like I said earlier he threw some interceptions sloppy passes not a good first performance for him and he really needs to work on refining his game if he's gonna try to carry on in the shoes of Bryce Mack and Tua because as it stands it doesn't look like he's gonna be the guy to lead Alabama to national championship. Now, it's early. Like I said, he's got a lot of work to do. If he tries his dangest, and he actually does put in the effort to work on his passing game and work on his snap decision-making, then I think he could, if you add that to his running capabilities, he could be a total package. But as it stands, he's not, and he really needs to work on the passing game because if your quarterback's best asset is his legs, then unless he's Cam Newton – or Lamar Jackson or 2004 Michael Vick, it's not going to be a good time for you as far as creating an offense. Now, home quarterback who doesn't have any problems whatsoever creating an offense is Shadora Sanders, as he left Colorado to beat Nebraska 36 to 14 on 393 passing yards and a 31 of 42 completions. And he's, him and Prime have got Colorado primed and ready to go because they're 18th now, speaking of rankings, Alabama's fallen to 10th in the rankings, Texas is up to 4th, so that game was a major shake-up to the rankings. This is the te- highest Texas has been ranked in years. And Alabama, this is the lowest they've been in a while, too, so... It definitely shook up the college football standings. Georgia cakewalked to victory. So did Michigan. The rest of the weekend was pretty much uneventful. But there's some big things coming Colorado's way. If Deion Sanders can continue on this trajectory that the last two games have set him on, they could have a very successful season and put Colorado really on the map when it comes to football. Because his son... I know it's just based off of two games, but I think he might have the makings of a superstar. Just getting started, you upset the former runner-ups, just last year's runner-ups, and you beat Nebraska on a team that didn't have very high expectations and were the underdog dogs in both games. Like that, There's a lot to say for Shador Sanders being able to just come in and be a gunslinger and get it done. So more power to him. That's definitely something to watch out for. Now on to the NFL, things did not get started the way Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs would have liked. Because they lost 21 to 20 in the first game of their what they had hoped to be a repeat season. And so far it just doesn't seem like championship teams tend to do well when they open the season the next year the championship hangover is real it's a phenomenon that has been with most teams since the beginning of sports as we know it and nobody can still seem to figure out how to beat it but i mean kansas city they've won super bowls before so they should know what it takes not having travis kelsey was a big hindrance to them. He's expected to be back against the Jaguars this upcoming weekend, so hopefully that can be a big boost in their favor and maybe let us get a true sense of what the Chiefs are bringing to the table this season. But their performance against the Lions wasn't that promising. They had a lot of good plays by Patrick Mahomes and a lot of easy drops by the receivers. I think if those receivers would have showed up in the more crucial moments of the game, then it would have been a totally different story. And we would not already be talking about the Chiefs season potentially not panning out the way people were anticipating because they were pretty strong Super Bowl favorites coming into the season. And they already lost their first game. I mean, not that that's the end of the world, but it's just not the way you want to get your dominant repeat run started. But similar to Alabama and Texas, maybe that will be what it takes to get them to shock their senses into consciousness and to really get ready to fight tooth and nail to defend that championship. But Travis Kelsey, they said they're optimistic he comes back against the Jaguars. Not a for sure thing yet, so keep your eyes out on that. And just because he does come back doesn't mean that he's going to be at full strength yet. As far as the rest of the NFL goes, the Eagles are currently whooping up on the Patriots. Jalen Hurts is showing Matt Jones who the best Alabama quarterback in the NFL is. The Jets and the Bills play tomorrow on 9-11, which is a fitting uh, day for the two New York teams with the best football programs to be playing. So I'm sure they'll have some type of commemoration for the tragedy. And it should be a good game that really sets the tone for what the Aaron Rodgers era of Jets football is going to be. I'm, I'm expecting the Bills to win. Like, to be honest, most big-name free agents that come and shake up their new team Whenever they do get there, they usually start off kind of slow because everybody's trying to feel each other out. And I don't expect Aaron Rodgers to be any different. But I do think that how well they do out of the gate can kind of give us a good indication of what the ceiling and what the floor is for this team. So if they can have a competitive game with the Bills, go down to the wire, fight tooth and nail, and come up a little short, then that would bode great for the fans of the Jets. If they get blown out, then not so great. So we'll see how it goes. I'm predicting a Bills win. I think it'll be competitive, but not a tooth and nail down to the wire game. I think it'll be pretty convincing, maybe like a 32 to Or 35-14, to something like that. I think the Bills will win by about two or three touchdowns. But I also think that Aaron Rodgers will definitely put some points on the board. But who knows? That will be a tough division this year. And we'll just have to see what happens. Bryce Young didn't do so hot in his debut for the Panthers. They lost to the Falcons, which is saying something in and of itself. But he had about a 50% completion rate, 20 for 38, only threw for 146 yards. So not so great for Bryce Sean to get started. But, I mean, hey, he's in the weakest division in the NFL, so he'll have plenty of time against not-so-great teams to get his legs out from under him. And 50% completion rate could have been a lot worse. But if it could have been a lot worse is the best you can say about your NFL debut, then you probably didn't have what you would have hoped for. In the baseball world, the Braves just clinched the postseason, becoming the first team to do so. If they win seven more games, they'll officially clinch the NL East, which it's really just a matter of time before they do so, unless they have a monumental collapse, which given Their history, you never know, but I would expect them to clinch the East sooner rather than later. At the moment, they're on pace to tie the franchise record for wins at 106 set by the 98 Braves. So if they do set that, they should get Morgan Wallen to come in and do a post-game concert. If he's uh, feeling up to it, we know he has a tendency to not show up for concerts. But the Braves have been the most dominant team in baseball this year and they're absolutely crushing the home run leaderboard with 52 home runs ahead of the next place dodgers so they're roughly one babe ruth ahead of the next closest team as far as total home runs hit the season and in addition to that with the award season coming up he's not favored by any means because he does have a high era but i'm just gonna say it here Spencer Strider should win the Cy Young Award. I'm looking on uh, USA Today for who they think is first on their Cy Young ladder, and they have Garrett Cole for the AL and Blake Snell for the NL. And they got Spencer Strider third, but their first place has a 12-9 and record whereas Spencer Strider has a 16-5 and five record and is one of the best two records in the league behind Justin Steele's 16-3. and three. But Spencer Strider also has 100 more strikeouts than Justin Steele and is, has a way better win percentage than Blake Snell. His war is one point behind there. And his ERA is one point higher. Strider's ERA is 3.83, and Blake Snell is 2.5. But, I mean, look, it's a whole point higher, but an ERA that's a point higher, that's just one run. I don't think I, – I think ERA is a very important stat, but when you have the second-best record in baseball and you're also striking out 100 more people – than the next closest, or than the other top two contenders for Cy Young, and you're also on the best team in baseball, I think that should make you a favorite for the Cy Young Award. Now, if his ERA does crack to B4, then probably not. But as it stands, I don't think he'll win it, but he definitely should. And the fact that he won't shows that These voting committees care way too much about numbers and magic numbers versus what's actually happening on the field. Because don't get me wrong, I know that team sports or team accomplishments shouldn't reflect overwhelmingly on individual accolades, which is what the Cy Young Award is. But how are you going to say that the best pitcher in baseball wasn't good enough to win 75% of his games, which is Blake Snell has not done so. If you want to say that it's uh, Justin Steele, he has a better argument. I would still say that 100 more strikeouts is more impressive than one percentage lower ERA, but that's just me. It remains to be seen. The MVP race isn't even really a race in the American League. I think Shohei Otani has that locked up. And he may be the first person to win defensive or not defensive Cy Young and MVP while being a dual threat. He wouldn't be the first person to win both awards in the same year. But he would be the first person to win both awards while both being a pitcher and batting full-time. Like, some pitchers just have such a dominant season that they do win the MVP, but those pitchers aren't two-way threats the way Shohei Otani is. And his closest competition seems to be Aaron Judge. And it's just one thing that goes in line with the MVP, like I was saying about Cy Young, is all the AL MVP favorites are on terrible teams. Now, for the other awards, like for the NL MVP, MLB.com was saying that Corbin Burns for the Brewers is the favorite, but and I understand that I might, uh, not Corbin Burns, uh, Juan Soto, is the favorite. Sorry, they have Corbin uh, Burns as the favorite for their Cy Young ranking. But anyways, they have Juan Soto as the favorite for the NL MVP when Ronald Acuna is ahead of him in almost every major statistical category and is on the best team in baseball. So I really think that they need to look more at a total package as far as what makes the mvp i'm not really sure how you could justify giving it to somebody who has worse stats on a worse team than a player but the awards are very subjective and it always comes down to media preference so i'm sure they can do some type of mental gymnastics to justify it but if it were up to me acuna is getting the nl mvp and Spencer Strider is getting the Cy Young for the National League. Now, in the fight world, Terrence Crawford is pushing for a fight with Canelo Alvarez, but Canelo has some big business of his own that precedes that coming up in two weeks when he fights Jamel Charlo on September 30th. As it stands, there's a 53% probability rating from Vegas that Canelo wins by decision, and that's the outcome that I'm expecting as well. But Charlo's nothing to take lightly. He's got a 37-1-1 record versus Canelo's 59-2-2, and Canelo's been beat by worse fighters than Charlo. So it's definitely within the realm of possibility that he does lose and it not be considered an upset. But he is still the favorite and I think after this fight, whoever the current Don King is of boxing needs to sit Canelo Alvarez and Terrence Crawford down in a room and figure out who's gaining weight or who's losing weight to make this fight work. If it, I think it would make more sense to be more competitive of a matchup if Canelo lost weight. But reports say that he's not interested in doing that and coming down. So, if that's true and Canelo's not losing weight, then I would do my best if I'm a promoter to convince Terrence Crawford to gain weight, but if I'm Terrence Crawford, I'm not doing that. So, it looks like the fight may not happen just because of logistical issues and people's refusal to change weight classes, but it's a lot more advantageous for a fighter to lose weight it's easier for them to lose weight and be competitive than it is to gain weight and go up a weight class to be competitive because it's easier when you're used to fighting with a certain amount of weight on you and you lose that weight you're a lot lighter you're a lot more uh, fluid It's makes your fight style different but it kind of Implements and improves upon your already given capabilities. Yes, you might lose some power, but what you lose in power, you gain in quickness. Versus, if you're a small fighter, you gain weight. You're not really used to carrying it around, and it just makes you slower. And you haven't gotten used to having that amount of weight on you. You get tired. You get slow. Your punches, like the power, doesn't supplement the way the quickness does when you lose weight because you haven't had enough time at that weight to get accustomed to the power. And it's, it would just make for a better fight if Canelo lost weight to fight Terrence Crawford than if Terrence Crawford gained weight because if Crawford's gaining weight, then he's going to get whooped. But I think Canelo losing weight to fight Terrence Crawford would be really compelling. It would be the biggest fight boxing think could put on right now. Unless they decided to dust off the Anthony, Joshua, Tyson, Fury, and Wembley idea, which it doesn't look like they're going to. So, Charlo versus Canelo could be a good indicator of what's next for Canelo after the fight, if he he does win. It is funny when we talk about sports like boxing, how we can just chalk it up to, yeah, obviously Canelo's going to get to this, and then we'll see what's next on his radar, but hopefully somebody can talk some sense into him and it's Terrence Crawford. Now Terrence Crawford may have another bout with Errol Spence on his radar because per the latest reports Errol Spence is not interested in waiving his rematch clause and it draws closer and closer to time where he has to cash it in or waive it so I'm guessing he's going to wave it or he's going to cash it in and try to hit the training camp again to run it back. But if I'm Terrence Crawford, you still have to train. Take it seriously because you don't want to get upset by underestimating somebody you've already beat. But it's not really anything new for him. He's just kind of treading the water until he would be getting through with the rematch. And I don't think it'll change anything. I can understand from a financial perspective why Harold Spence would want to fight Terrence Crawford again just because he'll make an insane amount of money and some people may not watch the rematch just because Terrence Crawford beat Spence so convincingly last time but it'll still make a lot more than he would if he waived his rematch clause and fought some nobody just to get the momentum back but in the long run I think it would be better for Spence If he did, just kind of start back over at the bottom and work his way back up. Because the fight game has a very short memory. And if you get convincingly beat twice in a row by the person who is widely considered to be the best in your weight class, then for all intents and purposes, your career as a serious top contender is done. Because you've basically proven that you're not the best. So why should people invest the time in you and pay attention to your fights when they know that you're never going to break through the glass ceiling? And that's pretty much what would happen if you had two pretty convincing losses back to back. I mean, just ask Deontay Wilder. They were talking about Deontay Wilder like he was a killer three years ago. Now, I haven't heard a peep out of him since he lost to Tyson Fury. And I haven't heard anybody talking about him having a big comeback fight. his career is pretty much on the outs. And it's just because he cashed in his rematch clause and lost. Whereas, if you lose the first fight, start back at the bottom and spend a whole bunch of time beating up lesser opponents but building your credibility back up. And eventually you fight other top guys. And then you get back to the point where people are thinking that you're, was the old Kobe Bryant commercial, say, the same animal but a different beast. And then you do the rematch. It's a lot more compelling, a lot more up in the air as to what's going to happen. And it really would be a benefit to both fighters to probably make more money And if he lost then, at least he got to add a couple more years to his career as a top contender. But, I mean, most people, and I don't blame them in that situation, would just go for the easy payday and the quick gratification. Because, I mean, all it takes is one injury and your career is done and you can't have a chance to make that much money again. So, he'll probably cash it in and he'll probably lose again. And that'll probably be the end of Errol Spence as a top-level fighter. I hope that's not what happens, but we'll see. Otherwise, the middleweight division, the welterweight division in boxing is pretty much just Terence Crawford and Canelo Alvarez, and they don't seem like they're going to be fighting any each other anytime soon. And boxing will be back to treading water like it usually is. UFC had a big fight last night, but the biggest I think takeaway was a very competitive fight between one of the new guys on Dana White's recruitment show. Like it's like not a game show, but they're like a bunch. It's like basically UFC version of Tough Enough from WWE back in the day. He fought the guy who won the competition. Won the right to face like a top-level contender. And he lost last night, but he had a really good showing. And that was just the most interesting part of that pay-per-view. The rest of it was a bunch of no-names that I had never heard of before and probably won't ever look up again. UFC, they make a ton of money. So, I mean, I can't say it's a bad thing, but I think they have too many pay-per-views. And too many championships. A lot of these weight classes in UFC and boxing, I think if they merged them instead of having like a super welterweight, a middle welterweight, a light welterweight, like every weight class pretty much has three tiers. If they just merged some of them and consolidated their championships, it would be a lot easier to keep up with who's who And it would make their cards stack. Like, UFC has had 300. Last night was UFC 293. And they've only been around since the mid-90s. Let's see, UFC 1 was in 1993. So, in 30 years exactly, they've had 300 pay-per-views. Which is a wild level of turnout for a pay-per-view. Whereas, I think WWE does it better. Where they have one pay-per-view a month. And each of their biggest stars are typically on the pay-per-view. Like imagine a UFC version of WrestleMania. Where it's... You, obviously, a lot of these people are retired now, but let's say if you go back five or six years ago, you have Conor, Khabib, Ronda Rousey, Amanda Nunez, Holly Holmes, Nate Diaz. Like, Imagine a fight with all of those guys on it. That would be insane. It would be so much fun, and I don't think that it'll ever happen. But if it did, that would just be massive for the UFC. The closest thing I can think of to when they did that was UFC 200, which was in 2016. They had Amanda Nunez fought once. They had Brock Lesnar came out of retirement for it. Cain Blasquez had fight Daniel Cormier. Like That was a pretty stat bout, but at the same time, that's the only card they've had like that that I can think of. So, maybe one day in the future, they can put a card like that together again and do it more consistently instead of just having a pay-per-view like every two or three weeks with a bunch of jabronis on it. But, in addition to that, there was also... A big upset in the FIBA World Cup with Team USA getting put out by Germany, I believe it was, unfortunately. And we also got beat by Canada today in the bronze medal game. So USA is coming away with nothing from FIBA. And it just shows that, and we failed to medal in a second consecutive World Cup. The first time this happened since 1970. This is what happens when we don't send our best guys to represent us on the world stage. I mean, Anthony Edwards is great. But, like I was talking about the UFC pay per view last night. It's a bunch of jabronis that are out there representing us. I mean, Anthony Edwards is the best player on Team USA when he's not even probably a top 20 player in the NBA. It's just sad. I mean, there's nothing you can really do to incentivize players to play on the world stage unless you like let them have contract bonuses. Even then... Most of them are so rich that they don't need it. But it's just sad that we, America, as far as basketball goes, if they truly assembled the best team, I mean like a dream team level collection of superstars coming together, it's not even close. Team USA should be Steph Curry as the point guard. Let's see, who would the shooting guard be? Devin Booker at shooting guard. I would still say LeBron at small forward. KD at the power forward. And center. See, there aren't any good. Anthony Davis at center. Sure, that's a starting five that would be great for Team USA. Obviously, none of those players would ever do it. But if you put them out there instead of Anthony Edwards and Josh Hart, could you imagine the slaughter that would commence? Like even the backup team. She took Damian Lillard, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. He was probably never doing any type of international play again after what happened to him last time. But just for the sake of the argument, Jason Tatum. Like if any of those guys, Jalen Brown, were to show out for Team USA, it would be a completely different story. And it wouldn't be close, I don't think. And Luka Doncic did great. Uh, He led Slovenia to another gold medal. So he once again shows that he's one of the best players in the world. But it also shows how international the game of basketball has gotten. And how if you put the world on one side and America on the other, and you had to build together a team, then I'm not sure who would win. Let's see. Here's Team USA for FIBA basketball. Mikael Bridges, Tyrese Holliburton, Cameron Johnson, Brandon Ingram, Paolo Banchero, Bobby Portis, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Jared Jackson Jr., Austin Reeves, and Walker Kessler. I haven't even heard of some of those people. And the ones that I have heard of are complimentary players best. Like Austin Reeves plays for the Lakers, Walter Kessler I don't, I've never heard of this guy in my life. Let's see what his stats are. He averaged nine points a game last year for the Utah Jazz. On 72% of field goal, but nine points a game, and he's on Team USA. That is insane to me. Let's see, Paulo Banchero, never heard of him either. He plays on the Magic. He averaged 20 points a game. So, I mean, they got to give them that. But how good were the Magic last year? I don't even know if they made the playoffs. But it's just not good for USA's international reputation when we do send a bunch of young guns. Let's see. The average age, there isn't a single player over the age of 28 on the team. The oldest players are Josh Hart and Bobby Portis, and the youngest is Walker Kessler. So, I mean, it's the younger players that have the stamina and still have the health to play year-round. And are trying to make a name for themselves. But I think the best men's basketball teams have been when it's a combination of young guns with the athletic ability to still play a full summer season after a full NBA season. And veterans who can help these guys level the storm when... There are in a close game, like we lost in overtime today against Canada. So, I mean, I get that the superstars won't play, but even if you got older players like Rondo or like a Derrick Rose, <laughs> I mean, the last thing Derrick Rose needs is more opportunity to hurt himself, but like <laughs> just players with veteran ability and talent, like Dwight Howard. Like what's Dwight Howard doing? this summer. I don't even know if he's still in the NBA. Let's see, Dwight Howard. Yeah, he's playing in China right now. They could have gotten him to come out and play. And he probably would have been better for Team USA to have on their team than Bobby Portis. It also shows you how uh, unfortunate it is when there's only two centers on the International team, when back in the day, the center position was one of the like cornerstones. I think the dream team had like four or five power forward slash center players. Like, you mean to tell me Dwight Howard would have been better to have than Walker Kessler? Like, he might be old and basically washed in NBA terms. He's 37. But he'd get you more than nine points a game. And especially if he actually played out in Team USA and was going hard in the paint. Like, yeah, his last season, the Lakers, he only had six points a game. But still, that's because he wasn't as important in the rotation. I just think that older veteran players would make, and a mix of young players, too. Like, he had a power forward core of Anthony Edwards, And I'm trying to think of like an older power forward that is good enough to be on the team, but not like so good that he's not going to play. Can't think of any at the moment, but you know what I mean? A balance of players. Then it would make for a lot better showings on the world stage. WWE News. Jimmy Uso had an altercation with John Cena on SmackDown last week. Payback came and went. And John Cena got to be a special guest referee in the Miz versus L.A. Knight match, which didn't really amount to much. He ended up giving L.A. Knight the implied endorsement of raising his hand after the match. But John Cena had a big win at their WWE show in India in a tag team match with Seth Rollins yesterday. So what happens with him remains to be seen, like I said last week. I'm hoping for Cody Rhodes, but who knows where it will shape up. But it's been a wild week in sports. Things are about to get even crazier as the NBA gears up and bit be- LB playoffs get ready to go and the NFL season really starts heating up. Be sure to check out that Bills Jets game tomorrow. I think it's going to be great. And I'm calling the Bills. But other than that, that about wraps it up. Y'all have a great week. I'll see y'all next time.